0: I'm really excited about really enhancing our education and exhibition capacity. I mean, there's a lot of potential and I feel like we're a diamond in the rough. And I think now is the time for us to continue building that foundation for growth in education and exhibition. The world has changed a lot. And I think what we're doing right now is keeping the pulse on what our community needs.
1: This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition. Joined this week by our deputy editor, Rebecca Pauly, and our chief analyst at Box Office Pro, Sean Robbins. Rebecca is a Mets fan, a team that won over 100 games and didn't make it past the wildcard round. Sean, a fan of the 100-plus win Braves team that was eliminated by my Philadelphia Phillies, which are currently... In the World
2: Series. And the shortest episode (laughs) of the box office podcast, as both Sean and myself are about to storm off in protest.
1: You guys had a wonderful season. You guys had a wonderful, irrelevant season that no one will remember. And that's fine. Listen, it's been 11 years since the Phillies made the playoffs. We were due one. Both of you guys have been to the World Series, uh, your teams at least. Sean, your team won it last time around in a very similar way. You snuck in, you got hot. Yeah, we'll see what
3: happens. The Houston Astros though.
2: Who am I supposed to root for? I can't even pick one over the other. Like
3: <laughs> I've been torn because I I want to say the Phillies because they're in the Braves division. And if you take the football mentality, everyone always roots for the team that's in their conference, but I also like the Astros because I'm a huge Dusty Baker fan. I want to see him get a ring as a manager. He has some connections to the Braves, so I'm like, I don't know which one to really pull. Everyone
1: for. likes Dusty Baker. Everyone hates a cheater. Yeah, uh, that without one. Without those can. trash cans, <laughs> who knows how the Houston Astros are going to do? Welcome. Obviously, this is a sports podcast. Now <laughs> we do have movies to talk about. The top story as we enter this week, guys, coming out of the Halloween weekend. What was it? Four horror movies in the top ten. Three horror titles in the top five, two of them being original movies. We've been calling, begging for original IPs to hit theaters. Horror is really overperforming here. Let's start with that. Sean, what was your quick takeaway out of a weekend where we saw, yes, Dwayne, The Rock, Johnson's Black Adam repeat as number one, but horror titles really stick around in the box office?
3: Exactly that. I think it's really telling that, you know, after a year of seeing so many horror movies kind of prop up this recovery on Halloween weekend this year, four of them are in the top five. And granted, we're not talking about these giant it level numbers from a few years ago. But in the aggregate, you look at the performance of all of these movies. It really speaks to I think how well this genre has been a foundation for bringing back moviegoers, especially young moviegoers under 35.
1: Rebecca, you're a big horror genre fan. The titles that we have here in the top 10 are Halloween Ends, A Legacy Sequel, Terrifier 2, an ultra gory, let's say niche title, I think even among horror fans, it's really overperforming. And then two original studio titles, you've got Smile and Lionsgate's Pray for the Devil that opened up last weekend. What's your takeaway of where the horror genre is today in relation to these overperformances at the box office?
2: Yeah, I mean horror and comedy are always the two genres that have, you know, historically I think just been better communally. Have worked maybe less well if you're just alone sitting on your sofa. There's an experiential element to horror there where you have to be in a crowd, you have to share the laughter and the screams and all of that.
1: And it feels like the horror movies coming out right now are A little bit more diverse than in many other genres, the titles that are out there in the slate right now—they're quite different from one another. There's not one that's too similar from the other. And as we talk about these horror titles, we know how enduring they are at the box office. But it's time to turn the page with Halloween behind us, guys. We are squarely in the holiday season. Sean, that brings up. The big questions that we have looking forward at the forecasting, not exactly for this coming weekend, because there's not much coming out. Uh, We expect really to be business as usual. But the big date on our calendar is November 11th when Black Panther Wakanda Forever hits theaters. Early screenings, early reactions have been overwhelmingly positive. There's even been whispers of this having a best picture potential. We always say it when we talk about the staying power of these Marvel movies. They have to connect with audiences to really hit those heights. How has your forecasting changed for the Black Panther sequel now that you know more about it?
3: I think it honestly may not change a whole lot because we tend to bake in positive reactions more often than not with Marvel movies. Granted, this year has been a little bit of a hiccup with that because both Thor and Doctor Strange ended up being more divisive than has been typical for the franchise. But so far, so good. I think the fact that there was an expectation of this being a memorial to Chadwick Bozeman, it sounds like that's really top of mind for everyone that has seen it so far. Obviously, I'm avoiding spoilers, like a lot of people, and they they can't even give out spoilers. So so far, everything about the marketing is hitting the right tones. I think Disney is really going to amp up that machine here over the next week or so. And you know, really, If we're talking about where it's going to rank in terms of the biggest weekends of the year, it certainly has a shot at perhaps being the biggest. So I think it has a fairly decent shot at topping Multiverse of Madness's 187 million opening. It could be a little bit on either side of that. Wouldn't even rule out potential at a 200 million opening with these kinds of reactions. It is a long movie, though. That's the one thing we're hearing is it's emotional. It's big. It's great. But it is long, and that will limit show times, especially in holiday season when matinees aren't going to be as strong before kids get out of schools, so That's going to be something to watch for. But on the flip side... That can help staying power. That can help legs into Thanksgiving and Christmas.
2: Now, Sean, I want to ask you, if you look at the top five for this past weekend, you have obviously Black Adam and then four horror films. You can't just have the one big tentpole. With Wakanda Forever, I mean, what are the films that you see maybe having counter-programming potential? Because we can't just rely on Black Panther to get us through to Avatar and then Avatar to get us through, you know, a kind of a... January doldrums of 2023. So, what else on the calendar do you think could break through?
3: Yeah, that's a good point. And this is still not quite a normal November. You know, we look at, I tend to see something like the menu and and Devotion, and The Fablemans, and Bones and All, and She Said, all opening over Thanksgiving weekend, not to mention Glass Onion, which is another topic in and of itself. These are all movies that really need to add up to some sort of strong counter-programming angle. It's really hard to say which one is going to rise above the rest. I think something like The Fablemans is interesting because it already has significant Oscar buzz, and it's a Spielberg movie, but it's also a very personal Spielberg movie, and that's one of the litmus tests we haven't seen completely past in terms of prestige films coming back on a big commercial level post-COVID, this will be one of those, testing that.
2: And for Strange World, it's been a while since a kid's movie has <laughs> hit.
3: Yeah. And Strange World, which for Disney looks like an interesting one. It's tracking, I would say, a little softly compared to things like Wreck-It Ralph and, and Frozen 2, but it's still a month, well, less than a month, a few weeks out from release. If it gets good reviews and it's you know essentially the first big animated movie to open in several months. That could propel it through the holidays and in december honestly i'm looking at violent night that to me just screams like a sleeper hit for genre fans
1: yeah i think those titles are going to be compelling to see how they play out we've also got that whitney houston biopic that i came out of show east hearing fantastic things about that footage the early footage that screened there sean how are you looking at the forecasting this early on for i want to dance with somebody which i'm surprised they haven't been a a little bit more aggressive with the marketing on because that has a $100 million potential, doesn't it?
3: I think it does. And I the marketing will be a big part of that. I would guess that they're holding off to let the Black Panthers and the avatars get out of the way first and then really push that marketing spend right around the holidays. And hope that be maybe a film that really legs out into January because it's also opening with the Puss in Boots sequel, another animated title, but an IP, which I think will be a really smart play around Christmas time. If we combine that with Avatar, which is apparently going to be three hours long. Over uh, three hours <laughs> the long. Whitney Houston Don't film. forget those extra yeah. for 10
1: minutes. Three hour, yeah. <laughs> 10 minute long running time for Avatar The Way of Water. Let's talk about that title because I think out of all the questions we have this year, Avatar The Way of Water has to be the number one movie that we could all be very wrong about. And that means we can very overestimate or underestimate the potential earnings of this film. Sean, where's your forecasting for this film right now?
3: It's pretty all over the place. At this point, I think it's safe to say it'll be a a 100 million plus opener. I don't think that's really going out on a limb. How much higher, though, is the question, because James Cameron films tend to develop very strong legs rather than be very front loaded. And it's coming out nine days before Christmas. So we know it will have several weekends, honestly, most of January to play without any major competition.
2: And this could very well be a title like Top Gun Maverick, where people want to see it in a variety of different formats.
3: Very true. And Top Gun is is really the, the top of mind comparison because that's the top dog this year. That'll be the question everybody's asking is will The Way of Water be able to outgrow Top Gun Maverick? If you ask me today, I say probably not domestically, but globally, it's almost without a doubt that this will be the biggest movie of the year.
1: I'm just not sure where Avatar is going to fit in with the family friendly style of say the Marvel movies that work on a cross quadrant basis. James Cameron has primarily been a filmmaker that appeals to slightly older audiences. I'm not sure how much that line is going to be blurred by this Avatar sequel, but we'll be tracking everything around the release of this title. And you can read those updates on our website, boxofficepro.com, where we will be updating our long range forecasts every Friday. Now, before we go into the news and interview segment, Sean, we do have a question here from one of our readers, Guillaume Venn, the co-president of Cinemas RGFM in Quebec, up in Canada. He wrote in with an interesting insight here, saying that as long as Black Panther 2 and Avatar 2 perform as they're expected, the top 10 films at the domestic box office won't be that far away from where the top 10 were pre-pandemic. So really, the big gap that we're seeing really isn't in the big top 10 titles from studios. It's in everything else. That's where we have to make the most ground up. How does that line up from your perspective?
3: It's a great insight. And it's spot on because we look at what the top 10 films for this year will look like once Black Panther and Avatar are out there. That would essentially mean the number 10 movie becomes Sonic the Hedgehog 2, which made $191 million. For comparison, in 2019, the number 10 movie was it Chapter 2. $212 million, not a significant gap. Same in 2018 when Solo A Star Wars Story made $214 million. So yeah, it is absolutely a question of where are the middle ground and the lower movies. Because once we get outside of that top 10, if we look at, say, number 30 for this year, something like Death on the Nile made $46 million. That's where it ranks. The Adams family was number 30 in 2019 and it made more than twice as much with 97 million. That really raises the question: what kinds of movies are we missing? And I look at where we're at right now in November, where are the knives outs and the Ford versus Well, That one never knives out is. (laughs) That one's streaming.
1: We
2: know that
3: one. Like in September, where was Zombie Land 2? I would wager to say that could have been the Hocus Pocus 2. Different audience, but same vibes, you know, nostalgic sequel. And But the big one, where are the animated movies, the mid-range IP for families like Secret Life of Pets, How to Train Your Dragon, Dumbo, all of those came out in 2019. We didn't really have many of those this year. We hope to see a lot more of those in 2023 and going forward. The family performers are kind of the one I look at, and we can't be too sure yet because Disney is such a major player in that. And they're the ones that are so hard to predict on when they're going to release a film in theaters versus on streaming.
1: Well, Sean, thank you so much for joining us in this week's edition of the Box Office Podcast. We'll have Sean again in the podcast in the coming weeks to go over the latest forecasting and trends here in the theatrical market. And moving on to the industry news part of the podcast, Rebecca, we've got some updates from the tech side of the business.
2: Yeah, AMC is upgrading to laser at AMC projection technology through Syniotic, starting that out in several theaters in Los Angeles. The plan is to eventually upgrade their Cineautic laser, laser projection in 3,500 auditoriums across the United States. Daniel, this is going to be the biggest technology upgrade that AMC has invested in since that initial conversion to digital, which came right before Avatar, and now this one's coming right before Avatar 2.
1: Yeah, this is a great example of upgrading your standard auditorium technology and experience to make sure that that regular 2D ticket is more premium than it used to be without really passing on all of that cost to your consumers. I think it's a great initiative. And it comes at a great time, we're talking about rising energy costs, laser projection, as we know, not only helps the image quality for the consumer, but significantly decreases the energy costs for the operators. So we're going to be seeing significant savings that AMC is going to be taking advantage of as they transition to laser projection. That's also going to be the case for Cinépolis the Mexican based multinational circuit, which is also going fully laser with Synionic and going back to AMC real quick, AMC will also be installing laser projection through IMAX, adding 18 new IMAX laser screens in its Saudi Arabian circuit. Rebecca, laser projection is really, really taking off this year. Probably one of the biggest tech stories when we look back in 2022 is just how much of a footprint laser projection got this year.
2: And we've heard that before. For example, a few weeks back, our interview with Cameron Mitchell, who used to be the CEO of Vox, a major player in the Middle Eastern market, he said, basically, you put any kind of premium experience in a theater in the Middle East, audiences just absolutely eat it up.
1: So we'll see where this goes. I think that's going to be a big story that we're going to be following in 2023 in this industry. And talking about things that we're going to be following in 2023, we've got a new movie theater here in New York City, a new independent location from our colleagues at DC TV in Lower Manhattan. Rebecca, you spoke with three of the people on staff there. That's going to be coming up in our feature interview segment. Can you tell us a little bit about this DC TV Firehouse Cinema?
2: It's a beautiful theater slash event space, both inside and out. DC TV has actually been around for 50 years, since 1972. They're really heavily baked into their community and activism efforts and education efforts. And now they actually have a permanent physical screening location called the Firehouse Cinema because it is in an actual old renovated firehouse.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to listening to it along with our audience here. Without further ado, here is Rebecca's interview with the team behind DCTV's Firehouse Cinema coming to you after this message from our sponsor.
3: The box office company has developed the tools and services to empower you to take charge of your digital marketing, and we are committed to continuously evolve with the latest trends and provide a seamless moviegoer experience. We're excited to share our latest addition to the Boost ecosystem. Our food and beverage ordering platform streamlines the purchasing process, so concessions are always one tap away. Whether they'd prefer to pick up concessions at the kiosk or have them delivered directly to their seats, guests can tailor their experience and even leave gratuities for service that keeps them coming back. Contact us to get started at sales at boxoffice.com.
2: We are back with John Alpert, Darren Messenger, and Shade Fabolita of DCTV. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. DCTV has been around for decades. What's the process like of actually opening a a physical theater screening space? And how long does something like that take? I mean, I imagine a documentary-themed nonprofit is not swimming in a crazy amount of money and resources. What was the journey to get this cinema open like for you guys? John, I heard it took at least a decade for this cinema to actually come to fruition?
4: It's been two decades, 20 years. So from conception to completion was exactly 20 years. And this was an idea as part of uh, the arts community trying to revitalize the neighborhood after 9-11. And doing construction in New York City is hand-to-hand combat, and it isn't easy, but I know we'll let the theater speak for itself if we were able to, you know, I think we produce something that's really, really valuable and important to the documentary community and to our local community as well.
2: Was it empty 20 years ago?
4: Or DCTV owns the whole firehouse. And in the back, unused and at the time occupied by the sanitation department master computer because it shares a common wall with the building next door where the sanitation department was. And at some point, they moved that operation someplace else. It was the stable for the firehouse in the old days when the horses took the fire trucks to the fires. and. So the horses lived where the theater is now. And when the alarm bell rang, they were trained to walk themselves into the garage space and the harness would come down from the ceiling and they would go off and put out the fire. All the wood, and they were like big, giant planks of wood were all resawed and repurposed. And so we've recycled much of the original stables into basically the lobby. We've got a fire truck donated by the Baptist Valley Fire Department in rural Virginia. They heard that there were these eccentric filmmakers who were looking for an American La France cab because that's the type of fire truck that was housed here at the fire department. They said, if you can get it up to New York, it's yours and so we've had a lot of fun the other design element in there are these big slabs of wood that are lit with led lights from behind so it sort of looks like the aurora borealis in a forest as the movie's getting ready to be played those were all chopped down and prepared by hart perry who was a very well respected documentary filmmaker so it's got documentary wood firehouse wood it was a lot of fun
5: it gives it a nice cozy vibe it's like when people talk about uh, pandemic projects, you know, some people like knitted sweaters, learned how to make pies, all of the decor. That, to me, that was like John's pandemic project. And it's like amazing. He is credited for all of that, the vision of that space. I mean, yes, 20 years in the making, but in terms of the look and feel it's pretty because it's not even just the the fire truck cab, but it's like the fire truck cab being where we're gonna have local beer for concessions built in, you know, like all of these like kind of things that I didn't know John had the talent for that too, but it's really fun.
4: We have some more ideas. The reality is that a single screen theater has a tough time surviving anywhere, but especially in New York. And if we're going to really have this thrive and support the community the way we want it to be, at some point we'll have to figure out how to build a second screen. Mm. So we've got the design elements. We just need to start vacuuming money out of the uh, theater seats in order to be able to fund it. Well, I think the reason why it winds up the way it is with the technical infrastructure, the quality, of the picture, the quality, of the sound, the fact that we want people to like, whoa, this is a really nice place to be, is that we are filmmakers who grew up on the streets, and we built this for other filmmakers like us. And when we started, the best we could do, because there was no cable TV, there was no internet, independent filmmakers had no access to any type of television at all, no access to movie theaters. We bought a used mail truck for $5 and somebody donated two black and white TV sets to us. And that was our theater. We parked it on the corner of Canal and Fenner Street. And if people liked our movies, they stayed and watched. And when they didn't, and it was quite often, we had an empty sidewalk. And an empty sidewalk is a very, very cruel teacher, but it's a good teacher. And we, we really learned a lot about exhibiting and how to interact with the public, and it's this interactivity that we've tried to build into the theater with our modern technology. And so, this I think has the best functioning and most sophisticated interactive system anywhere in the world. But we can connect to anywhere any place see anybody on the screen but the real interesting thing is there's no feedback and there's no latency and so it's like having the person in the room with you and it's very very exciting the events that we've done so far the energy level and the feeling of connectivity is really really good what we've done so far there was a work in progress made by a filmmaker from chinatown about the exploitation of home care aides. These are people that go to your grandmother's house and take care for, they work 24-hour shifts, they only get paid for eight hours. This was a documentation of these work conditions, the efforts to improve the work conditions, and people were calling in from their shifts in Queens and interacting with the audience it was a very exciting live event we also had an event that connected our cinema up with korea and we had live korean translation live sign language translations and it really enhances the value of the films and promotes the discussion of them darren and i just got off the phone with people who want to have a documentary festival of Romanian films and connecting up a New York audience with an audience in Romania. It's just thrilling to be able to do this because we started DCTV to bring people together, to make them more powerful. And this cinema is a really, really important part of that.
2: You're in such a vibrant, diverse area that has changed a lot over the last 20 years, like the rest of the city. How do you balance giving your community what they want versus your own resources, what you're interested in doing. I mean, like you say, you only have the one screen. There's so much opportunity there. Like, how do you winnow it down?
5: Dara? I ask myself that every morning. We've only been open a month. But I mean, I think what's unique about this situation is that, you know, like what you said at the beginning, it's like we have this new thing. And at the same time, documentary production, education, and exhibition has always been a part of DCTV, TV, it's just always evolving. And so mm-hmm. now we have this like, you know, it's like, what's the latest bright, shiny object? And the latest bright, shiny object is this incredible cinema. And yet people who know us and hopefully therefore respect us, it's like that is built in and gets finer with age, right? And so we have so many communities that we're serving So obviously our location, zip code 10013, so it's at the nexus of Chinatown, Tribeca, City Hall, that is our community. And our other community is documentary filmmakers Mm -hmm. from around the country, around the world, but specifically New York City. And now it's also our community as a general New York City audience where we have always been a place that there's different entry points oh you know like i know someone who was part of your youth media program or i took a filmmaking class there or i saw a screening back in the day and the exhibition portion of it you know we are a center by and for documentary filmmakers but this also allows us to connect to general audiences so people that might not know anything about documentary filmmaking. And it's not about the form itself, but they're just like, oh, you're screening a film about beluga whales. I always want to know about beluga whales. And so it's like the community, it's constantly evolving. The spirit of DC TV that I like to carry out that I feel like is very much aligned with my values. It's like, you know, documentary can be so many different things to so many people. It could be journalism. It could be art. And It is speaking truth to power. And so it's like, there is more documentary out there than I think a lot of people know about. And so it is a a shuffling a lot of things. I try to work with nice people (laughs) that are doing the right thing. And there is a a matter of like, okay, is this just going to be like a participatory? Like anyone can program anything. But like if, if I'm the programmer, like how do I... Put my cap on and make sure we're like screening good content. It's also by like the type of collaborations that I tried to do. And I think that's a way of just getting people involved. We just had Think Chinatown, which runs this Chinatown arts festival. It used to be a week long and now it's like a month long thing. And we were able to showcase some of their work in progress films and then some like premiere of some new films during this festival. And that was just really special and very much like we literally open our doors and all the seats are full because that is people can walk from their homes and come into our cinema. And then, you know, working with other documentary groups and organizations, we had a Vimeo program, we're going to be having a sneak peek of POV short docs coming up. It's just really nice that everyone I get to continue the work that I was already doing with so many of these groups and organizations, but now they have nice comfy seats and the best technology imaginable that makes their work that much more valuable because it's like we're taking something that maybe some people don't take seriously. We're taking seriously by putting it on a pedestal. And so that's kind of how I see the type of kind of collaboration and co-navigation of how to use this space. We're also serving as an extension of the programs we are already doing. So it's like, how could youth media, like working with the youth media program, like. Do you guys want to start also learning about curation? Like, how do we get filmmakers in here taking our workshops, doing continuing ed to learn about finishing their films and having color services and things like that? So it's constantly just looking inward and outward at the same time.
2: I mean, curation, when it comes, you know, as relates to programming and then just also other events and other, you know, community engagement that you do. Sade, I feel like something that arthouse theaters Can tend to struggle with is you want to be as inclusive as possible, but also you have to keep the lights on. (laughs) You don't just want to keep working with the same people all the time because then you would be missing out on different voices and new voices in other groups. As the managing director, (laughs) you have the macro view of all of this. How do you approach inclusive curation in a way that is manageable for a small group? Because it can get pretty, Overwhelming, I would imagine.
0: That's a really good question. And one of the things that we have talked about is as we're starting off with this new endeavor, there's going to be a period of trial and error. There's going to be a period of experimenting and understanding what the right mix is so that we have sustainability and we're also making sure that we're you know we're focusing on our community. We're able to make revenue. We're able to have all of these things coexist. And so right now, what we're doing is we're programming what we're going to do. As Dara was saying, in terms of reflecting inward and outward, we're going to be assessing, like, how does this mix work? This mix where we have this many private events, this many community screenings. you know, we're looking at those things and making those evaluations so that we can come up with the right mix to be sustainable. So it's, it's definitely an experimental phase for us where we're monitoring and, and we want to make sure that we're tackling all of these areas. So far, I think we're doing a really great job. I mean, there have been so many people that have been on the DCTV journey in so many different ways that are still with us. Like Dara said, they may have come to workshops and now they're joining us for these screenings. They may have participated in work and Progress Labs. They may have participated in the youth media program or been on our production team in the past and now come and they come and support the cinema in different ways and tell other people. So we have a lot of people that have been on the journey with us and a lot of community partners who now are coming, like she mentioned and saying, hey, can we do this? And we're fulfilling all of those needs. And the great thing is that we have time, right? So if we can't do something now with someone or a group, we can always do it in the future. So we have nothing but time. So it's nice because we sort of get to start off with this strong debut of all of these people that we have relationships with. And we can say, yeah, it's not just about us at DCTV, it's about these people that we work with, these other nonprofits, these independent filmmakers. It's about them. And we can showcase their work. And also with all these new requests that are being filled in there's nothing but time. We plan to be here for a while. And so I think that it's something that we're going to just continuously assess. I don't think it's going to be perfect, but we're definitely keeping our eyes and ears open because when we started this, we had very specific goals. And and a big part of that was community building and being able to provide the space and resources for the people that we serve. And as Darren said, that community is expanding and expanding. So we're trying to also keep our pulse and understanding what the needs are so that we can be the ones mm-hmm. providing those resources.
2: Yeah. I mean, John, is someone who's been with this from the beginning, it, it sounds like it's a real core part of the mission to not let go of that historical continuity. You want to bring new people in and, and bring new people into the community without alienating maybe the people who were there before, as someone who's been on this journey from 20 years and and seen the evolution and seen DCTV grow, what's been your experience with that? You won't want to get stagnant, but you want to respect the people you're working with.
4: So DCTV has a culture that is, I hope in a constructive way, relentlessly self-critical. Uh, and Dara and Shadi are going to nod their heads because they know what we're talking about. And it goes back to the early days of the mail truck on the sidewalk when we played, this is well, This is what a great film this is. We're the only people that have gotten into the sweatshops. we're in. And nobody stays to watch the film. They all go to the subway. Something's wrong. And so we've always tried to assess the work that we're doing, whether it's with our classes, whether it's with the documentaries that we make, and always try to make them better and better. And as we were designing the theater, this was also our concept. To be blunt, the initial design by the architect was underwhelming. And I don't want to see a movie in a place that's like sterile like this. And we have all been in those type of theaters in New York City. I want to be in a place where I feel like I'm being celebrated as somebody who was interested in documentaries. Documentaries are being celebrated. Nobody cut corners on the equipment. This is the best sound, the best picture. It's, and that's what it's like. Our field of dreams. We built it. Has well, anybody going to come? And you know, I was sitting by the door, and an Academy Award-winning filmmaker comes in, looks at the picture, and gasps and goes, "Oh my goodness!" And I started to cry. And so it's this. This dedication and and this emotion, and, you know, it's in our name, community. We are a community center, and that's the spirit of our theater.
2: So you've been open for a month now. What are your ideas moving forward? Because I imagine you're opening this space. Any list you had in your head of, oh, now, now we're going to do X, Y, Z, and then the theater actually opens. I imagine that you need to do some course corrections. What are your plans for the theater over the let's say it's first year in operation from
5: a programming perspective, Dara. I mean, I could just, John is like, he's the king of analogies. He's very good at having different analogies for every emotion. I would say I've been saying a lot that right now I feel a little bit like a wedding DJ where we have to take a lot of requests. We're listening to the community we're listening to our members that have been with us forever, to people that just walked in and say, what's going on here? Right. So it's like we're just taking a lot of requests. It's not like programming a film series for your friends, like as much as we would all like to. Right. And but at the same time, I like some my dreams and hopes like are planning out that, right? Right now, we just open our doors. Everyone's like, ooh! ooh, ooh I want a seat. I want to stop. It's also award season in the industry. So people, because we're in New York City, they're like, we got to get our film to a New York City audience. So we're kind of fielding a lot of that. We're a single screen. We are just trying to put as much as we can there. And then I think a lot of the more intentional curation and type of thematic series and different type of, you know, just like the structure of how things are housed. That's something I'm constantly thinking about. I'm really confident that in a year we're going to just really, that is going to start cementing where in all of my time at DC TV, there's never a moment where it's like, oh, we're out of ideas. Like never. Right. And so, what a great problem to have is that there's just so many ideas. And I'm so grateful that I have a managing director that says we have time, you know? So it's like just to kind of pace ourselves because I've been doing that and having imposter syndrome being like, oh my God, we've been open a week. Why aren't we doing this? We've been open two weeks. Why aren't we doing that? And now it's like, okay. And so, we have to constantly be checking in with ourselves where I'm like, John, it's a great idea and let's revisit it in three weeks because you know how to pace ourselves right now with so many ideas we never have a lack of ideas and I'm just hoping that more and more as a single screen as we start especially it's like we can build we can have intentionality of all these things that we want to do and we also are going to make space to be reactive and, you know, things happen in the world. We are a community center. We have to be aware of what's happening in our community and make space for conversations and for viewings and adapt to what is happening with the rest of the organization and with our times. We are not out of this pandemic as much as we want. We hope we are. It is pretty amazing to be able to get together physically in space. And sometimes I'm still like, because it wasn't just like we opened the cinema. We also opened our doors after being closed and virtual for so long. And so it's kind of, it kind of feels like a rebirth, you know? I just wanted to,
2: for day from a managing director perspective, I mean, your first year understanding it's got to be a marathon, not a race. What are you excited about implementing or helping to bring into being that maybe you haven't been able to do
0: before? I view moving forward, as Dara said, sort of like this, this rebirth and this really big transitional moment for the organization. And so I'm really excited about really enhancing our education and exhibition capacity. There's a lot of potential and I feel like we're a diamond in the rough. And I think now is the time for us to continue building that foundation for growth and education and exhibition the world has changed a lot. And I think what we're doing right now is keeping the pulse on what our community needs. I just had a meeting with a workshop student talking to me about, you know, what she's interested in learning, what she wants to do. I think, and I speak to youth media students all the time, and I'm hearing about what they're interested in learning, what they want to do. And I think there's just a lot of potential to really develop both of those areas and so I think with exhibition we have our pretty folding seats but now we have this beautiful space and we want to do the same thing with our education side as well we want to be able to build those resources be able to teach you know have a diverse set of curriculum where people are learning different types of skills that are relevant to this time so just continuing to build in those areas are really those two strands are very very important
2: Thank you to our colleagues at DC TV. If you have the opportunity to check it out in Lower Manhattan, it really is a beautiful theater. Thanks as well, of course, to Daniel Luria and Sean Robbins. The Box Office Podcast airs a new episode every Thursday. We hope you will rate, subscribe, and tune back in next week. The Box Office Podcast is co-produced by Record Edit Podcast and The Box Office Company. Thanks as always for listening and have a great rest of your day.